you some questions today that might sound kind of basic when we're at church. Let me ask you a few things. Who is God? I mean, that's the question, in, in, in my opinion, the question in life. Is God a he? Is God a she? Is God an it or a they? Is God strong or weak? Is God close by or far away? Is God interested or is he kind of just aloof? Is God kind or cruel? See, however we answer these questions is kind of, well, it's just got a powerful impact on who we become. I mean, the truth is, as human beings, we all worship. We, we all worship and we become like what we worship. So to put it another way, what you think about uh, when you think about God, that will shape your destiny in life. And we've used this quote before. This is A.W. Tozer. He writes this, We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. So what comes to mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Now, some of you may not believe that, and that's fine. But I'm going to hopefully, as we weave into this series that we're starting, we're going to hopefully kind of get you there. Because sometimes we have these mental goals or these mental habits in our lives. And, and like I was telling Cassidy and Carly, the scriptures are not a story about us. We don't go to the scriptures to find out how to make our life better. We don't go to the scriptures to... To, to learn more about us. We go to the scriptures to learn more about who God is. And tends to, it tends to shape us if we let it. Now, let me just say this. If you think that God is an angry tyrant, and religiously you've come into that understanding that God is this angry tyrant, chances are it will shape you into somebody who is a religious angry tyrant. If you come to see God as, as a cosmic life coach, chances are it will shape you and it will make you, um, it'll make you kind of into the narcissist you already are. <laughs> Let's just put it that way, right? It'll, it'll make you want uh, God to make you the center of everything. And, and all of us, it doesn't matter, every human being has a mental image of God, right or wrong, Christian, Muslim, atheist, if you're angry at the God that doesn't exist, you, we all have a mental image of God. And so our goal over the next seven weeks is to dive into a passage of scripture that is the most quoted verse in the Bible by the Bible. And it's the funny thing about this is that for it's kind of ground zero for who God is, and yet I've never heard a sermon on it. Like I've, let alone a series of sermons on it. Like this is something for me. Like the, the last number of months has been 
kind of a big deal. Uh, rabbis in the first century called this verse and a number of things like it that they would add together called the 13 medot, meaning the, the attributes of mercy. And central to Jewish culture, I mean, this is like the, this is who God is. And it's kind of like for our day and age, it's kind of like our, our football verse, John 3.16, right? Everybody kind of knows John 3.16. Um, it's been kind of like the big uh, thing. Like, even if you're not a Christian, you kind of know what that verse is. But for Jewish people, Exodus 34, 6, and 7 were, were the, was the verse. This is who God is. Now, when we think about God, a lot of times what we do as we think about God very differently. See, we have this view of trying to come, come at God through um, kind of our Western European philosophical minds, right? So the first things we do when we think about God and we, we try to explain who God is, we list off the omnis, right? You guys know what the omnis are? God is omnipresent. God is omniscient. Uh, God, God is omnipotent, and I mean, those are the, like God is everywhere. Uh, God is all knowing, and God is all powerful. And we kind of go with those, right? But those are really just um, attributes of God. Those are that would be like me describing Angela, my wife, with like facts, you know, like hair color, <laughs> height, um, you know, just stats of Angela. And then if I, would, if I tried to describe Angela to you like that, you'd probably still be wondering, yeah, but what is she like? Like, what makes her who she is? And so what I want to do is, is, is look at this passage. Okay, this is kind of week one, and we're going to look at a lot of scripture today. So you got to, raise your hand if you have a Bible with you. Are, are, you, are, you, are you game enough to flip it with me, because we're going to go places. And, and the reason why I say that is because we're going to hit a lot of scripture today. And so I, I need you to be ca caffeinated and hopefully sugared up. If you haven't been sugared up yet, um, well, can't help you there until later. But here's, here's where we're going to begin. We're going to begin in Exodus 33, because God actually starts to reveal who he is by his character. And this gets kind of lost in our time. In fact, we're going to talk about this a little later, but we have this view of God that changes. We have this Old Testament view of God, and then we have this, okay, God's nice now view of us in, in, the, in the New Testament, which is all wrong. And we're going to get into that here. Exodus chapter 33, verse 7. This is how the story, I'm going to fly through this story. It says, now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and they stood at the entrances of their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. As Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke to Moses. Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, they, they all stood and worshipped, each at the entrance to their tent. The Lord would speak to Moses. Listen to this. 
face to face as one speaks to a friend. Now, I find that just really, really powerful. That that God and Moses have this relationship, this this face-to-face relationship like they're friends, like they're good friends. And then this next chunk, this next paragraph is kind of a, like if you were to take the tent off, I mean the top off the tent and, and listen into this conversation that Moses is having with God in the tent. Listen to this. Moses said to the Lord, you have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, listen to this, teach me your ways so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember, this nation is your people. So what Moses is saying, God, if you want want this to continue, if you want me to do this, I need to know who you are. I need to know what makes you who you are. I need to know how you think and how you feel and how you move and, and, and everything about you. And he goes, and then he throws in this last thing. And remember, these weirdos are your problem. Right? This group of people, they're actually, remember, this is your people. This is you committed to them, right? The Lord, sorry, the Lord replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. I mean, this is, this is the Old Testament version of God answered his prayer. Moses said, don't send us anywhere unless you are gonna go. Because how will people know that we're set apart? How will people know that we're different? How will people know that you are God unless you're there? And then Moses said, show me your glory. I mean, this is the hinge of the whole thing. Moses says, show me your glory. Which is probably the most bold thing that's ever been uttered to God. All right, Moses wants to see God's glory. Now, glory for us in English, that means fame, you know. Um, that means kind of like notoriety. But in ancient Hebrew, it means show me your presence, show me your beauty, show me what you're like. Um, I want to experience your presence and your beauty. I want to be kind of wrapped up in that, your character, the essence of who you are, God. Uh, Moses says, show me that. That's a pretty bold ask. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness, which is kind of a synonym for glory, to pass in front of you. And I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. So Moses says, show me your glory. glory, And and God says, actually, I'm going to do one better. I'm going to proclaim my name to you. I'm going to show you who I am. I am. Now, in the ancient Near East, uh, a name, your name was much more than a label, much more than, 
than putting your name on a cup of coffee at the end of the bar and then we distinguish people from each other. I mean, it was much more than a moniker or a label. Your name was essential to kind of who you are. There's a scholar, an Old Testament scholar named Michael Knowles, and he wrote this. In the world of Hebrew scriptures, a personal name was often thought to indicate something else about the bearer's identity, origin, birth circumstance, or the divine purpose that the bearer was intended to fulfill. This is why you see all the way through the Old Testament, when someone gets named something, it actually is in response to an event that's happening around that time, or, or something that they were intending to become. It's, it's kind of, I mean, we got Jacob in the Old Testament. I would encourage you to go take a look at the Jacob's name in the Old Testament means deceiver. And if you read the story of Jacob, you understand why. He deceives, he gets deceived. And at some point later on in his life, he's actually, rest, there's a moment he's actually wrestling with God and God renames Jacob Israel. Renames him. And Israel mean Israel means God fights. So the names are super significant in the Old Testament. And so he says, uh, he goes on a little later, it says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Now, some people take this out of context. We'll get into this down the road. Um, that like God is arbitrarily, he likes some people, he doesn't like some people. And that's really not what's going on here. This actually shows the depth of God's mercy because he actually chose the people of Israel, kind of going back to what I said earlier. And they were a stiff-necked, stubborn people. And God continues to show mercy on them. And then it goes on, verse 20. But he said, you cannot see my face. For no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, There is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. Where glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face you must not see. And then he gets into this passage that we're going to be resting in the rest of this next few weeks. The Lord said to Moses, chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones, and I will write on them the words that, they, that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Remember that, Moses? You know, like, Be ready in the morning and then come up on Mount Sinai. Present yourself to me there on the top of the mountain. No one is to come with you or be seen anywhere on the mountain. Not even the flocks and the herds may graze in front of the mountain. Like God is setting up this moment with Moses. So Moses chiseled out the two stone tablets like the first ones. He went up Mount Sinai early in the morning. It's always early in the morning, right? That's like the best time, right? Any morning people? No? Four of us? Right on. Morning people unite. So early in the morning... Um, and he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. He passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. 
He punishes the children and their children for the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generations. And then it says, Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshiped. So the next seven weeks, today we're gonna be talking about the Lord. Next week, we're gonna be talking about the Lord. (laughs) I know, you're like, wait, didn't we already hear this? No, there's more to come. Then we're gonna be talking about how God is compassionate and gracious and slow to anger. What does that mean? It's actually a Hebrew uh, phrase that says, he's long of nostril. Yeah, wait for that one. Right? And, then, and, then, and then he's abounding in love and faithfulness. And yet then it says this curious thing at the end that kind of makes us squirm a little bit. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished and he, and he continues to punish. It's like, wait a second, I thought he was compassionate and gracious. Well, we're going to get into all of this. Okay? this is, we're not going to chop that part off and go, well, we kind of ran out of time. <laughs> we're actually going to get into that as well. And so I want to really encourage you to be here. I'm glad you're here on day one, but, but be here for these. And so we're going to really just quickly trace how God reveals his name. And I promise you, every week how this is going to go, there's going to be some nerdy Hebrew, okay? Then there's going to be some, some stories, Okay, we're going to talk about, we're going to unpack some stories. Then we're going to point to Jesus. And then we're going to talk about how this applies to us. So you with me on that? Somebody say something. Right on. Okay, Genesis 1, you guys know this one by heart, right? For <laughs> You do, right? In the beginning, God, what? Created the heavens and the earth. So all we know is in the beginning, Elohim, that's the name for God, that's the name that is given at the time, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. Elohim is basically a a version of a title, it's basically a title, a proper name. It's all we know is that God created, that there is this God who created, that's all we know. Okay, and then fast forward to Genesis chapter 17, verse one. Let's look at this. It says, when this is his moment with Abraham, Abram, when Abram was 99 years old, you know, just a young kid, uh, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God almighty. Hebrew here is, I am El Shaddai. So if you guys are Amy Grant fans, I mean, this is boom. This is where it comes from. Like four of you know what I'm talking about. Um, So El Shaddai. Now, here's the thing that's going to kind of stir you up a little bit. El, El is actually the Canaanite word for God. And so God is trying to communicate to Abram a piece of what he's like, and he's using familiar language of the culture. And so he's saying, I am El, I am creator God like the Canaanites think, but I'm even more than that. I am El Shaddai. I am the king over all other gods. We're going to actually talk about that, that idea that there are other gods next week, okay? So I am El Shaddai, the king over the other gods, uh, but this is more than a, a, a new label. It's kind of something prophetic that God is telling Abram, and he, and he says, uh, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless, he says. Then I will make a covenant between uh, me and you and will greatly increase your numbers, 
he says, um, Abraham fell face down and God said to him, as for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram, which actually means father, okay? Your name will be Abraham, for I have what? Made you father of many nations. This is that name piece again, okay? I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. So God even changes Abram's name from father to father of many nations, and this is like part of the trajectory of who Abram becomes. He becomes Abraham. Fast forward to Exodus 3. I know we're flying here, but there's this clock in the back. Exodus 3, chapter 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, which is always lame to work for your father-in-law, right? Can I get a name? Anybody? No? Okay. The priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. You know this story, right? It's a burning bush. Okay, here we go. So Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. And this is my favorite part. So Moses thought, I will go over. And see this strange sight. <laughs> Love it. Why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he was curious and had gone over to see this, uh, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, what's up? Moses says, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for this place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the deceiver. <laughs> and at this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out um, because of their slave drivers. I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land a land flowing with milk and honey. So just fast forward here to verse 10. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. It's actually translated in Hebrew, I am with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is with, that it is who I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, suppose I go. <laughs> suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? Now, here's the thing. In Hebrew, we have no equivalent in Hebrew for the English, what is your name? We have no equivalent for it. It's like Spanish, como te amas? You know, that whole deal. I didn't even say that right. But the whole idea of like, it's not even, it's not even what is your name. It's, 
It's, I don't know, it's Spanish or something else. But the point is, is we don't have a, an equivalent in Hebrew for what is your name. We don't have it. The closest we have in Hebrew is what is the meaning of your name. It's ma shimka in Hebrew. What is the meaning of your name? So he's not asking him what his moniker is, what his what is what his what his first name is. Moses is asking him who he is, like what makes up who you are? What is the significance of your name? And we know that names mean something, right? So he's trying to get to the essence of who God is, and God says to Moses, "I am who I am," which was so helpful. I mean, right? That's so helpful, right? Let's think of it like a dad, like, hey, dad, why, why can't I do it? Because I said so, right? It's just, that's, it feels like that's what God's saying. I am who I am. He says, this is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Now, this gets kind of nerdy, but really, really important that we dive into this. Because it means something in about five minutes. <laughs> Hebrew here is... Echa asher echa, okay, which means it's this, it's the Hebrew word of haya, which is karate, right? So it's, it's, <laughs> sorry, I'm just, my brain, um, but it's, it's, it's an imperfect tense, okay, but it's this ongoing action, it's an incomplete action, which means that I am who I am is, is something that's continuous, okay? Basically, you can translate this, I am who I am, or I be who I am. Or another way to look at it is, what I am, I will be. Which, when you think about it, is really powerful. In an age of many gods, changing gods that become angry and and do things and, 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 and don't do things. God, this God, is saying to Moses, I am unshifting. I am unchanging in who I am. Now, most of you who know me probably think that most of the time, I'm a nice guy. But if you think I'm a nice guy all the time, <laughs> you like, talk to my wife or... <laughs> Talk to people that drive when I drive, or whatever. Talk to Dodgers fans or people that like country music. I am not nice all the time. But God is nice all the time. God is compassionate and gracious when? All the time. And so God also uh, says to Moses in, in verse 15, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. Now, it says the Lord in your Bible and in mine, which there's history here. And it's important you know why. See, the Lord is actually this nerdy way of, uh, there's a word for it, it's called the tetragrammaton, and it's this, this idea of how they got this word. Because in Old Testament, in, in Hebrew, it's all consonants, there's no vowels. 
And so Eche is I am. That's what God says. First person, I am. Yahweh is third person, he is. Follow me? So when God says, I am, he's saying, Eche. When we say he is, we're saying Yahweh. Okay? And so, when, and so there's, no, there's, no con, there's no vowels, it's only consonants. And so what we have is Y-H-W-H and, 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 in the original text. And Jews stopped saying Yahweh out loud because they were afraid of saying something. They were afraid of using God's name in vain and kind of that whole Ten Commandments thing, which is about to happen here in the story. And, and so they swapped out the term Adonai for Yahweh. And Adonai means Lord. Okay, you following me? So this is super important because um, Lord is a title. It is not a name, okay? Now, I work out... Um, in the mornings, and there's a guy there that I've, I've gotten to know. He's a great guy. He's an older guy, and he constantly refers to his wife as the wife, which I just, I don't like saying that. Like, it's like, <laughs> he doesn't use her name. He just says, well, the wife. <laughs> so if you do that, I apologize, like, but don't do that. And, and so, but that's like her, it's, it's a title, right? Well, you know, the wife, she's going to do this. And I'm like, well, what's her name? What's she like? And, and so what we have in our scriptures is the Lord. We have a title. But this is Yahweh. And so in context, when you, when you read this in context, he's saying, I am who I will be. And then he says it again, I am who I will be. I am compassionate and gracious. I'm slow to anger. I'm abounding in love and faithfulness. And he reveals himself to Moses. And this has become the most quoted verse in the Bible, by the Bible. And it has profound implications for us. Because when God says, what I am, I will be, and he says, I am compassionate and gracious, what does that mean? He's compassionate and gracious how often? All the time. He is slow to anger all the time. And he points, it is points forward. Like, look at John John 1, verse 14. Check this out. And this is where we're going to point to Jesus, okay? Look at this. It says, the word, which is a way that John uses creator God, uh, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. Have you heard this before? The glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. He's actually quoting this idea of grace, a compassion, it's like a Hebrew translation into Greek that is compassionate and gracious. That actually here, what John is doing, he's retelling the Exodus story with Jesus as the center. And, and it's beautiful. John 17, check this out, verse 6. 
He says, uh, this is, is Jesus' prayer to God. He says, I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. This idea that, that Jesus has revealed who God is in the flesh, right? Fast forward to verse 25. If we have it, it's okay. <laughs> the wife, you know. All right. Righteous Father, sir. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you. And they know that you have sent me. Look at this. I have made you known to them. I've revealed you to them. And will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. This, this beautiful picture of what it looks like to follow Jesus actually means that God, the creator God of the world, lives in you and you in him. As a disciple of Jesus, he spells out the care. This is, Eugene Peterson says this, Jesus spells out your, uh, God's character in detail, just how he lives. Check out Philippians 2. We're almost done here, so check out Philippians 2. Okay, And this is a hymn that Paul writes to the people of Philippians. This is the latter part of it. It says, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Yahweh to the glory of God the Father. See, this is where it really hits, right? It starts to unpack a little bit for us because sometimes for us, we get this idea in our heads that there's God the Father and he can be kind of mean. And then uh, Jesus' son came along and kind of went off to college and learned some cool liberal, you know, liberal arts stuff and how to be more tolerant. And he came up with an idea about how to rescue us from God. That is so wrong. And sometimes we live with this idea in us that, okay, the word in Greek, kyrios, is actually the, tr the Greek translation for the Hebrew word Adonai, Lord, right? So, so Paul is saying all throughout the, his, his writings, Paul is saying Jesus is, is the Messiah, Yahweh. And Yahweh is all throughout the New Testament. And we have this character, caricature of God that God is angry and Jesus is happy and, and he convinces God to not hate us anymore, which is, like I said, so wrong. Hebrews 1, I think this might be one of the last pieces. Nope, it's not. Um, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in the last days, these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through him, through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact repre representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided the purifications of, purification of sin, for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So is Jesus compassionate and gracious? All the time. 
When we get a picture of who God is by by seeing Jesus in the New Testament. And that's what over and over again writers say to us. So two implications, and we wrap this up. First one is this. God is a person. Now, I'm not saying just merely a walk around kind of person. We see God in Jesus in the flesh, yes. But God is personal. God is relational. That God is, his, his goal on earth is to know and be known. God wants to know you. God wants to be known by you. God's agenda is a relationship with you. I mean, we, we read these things that we just read in John 17, how Jesus came to reveal God and have this relationship for with us. And, and that's really God's heart for you. See, the goal is to not just know about God, and we talked about this the last couple of weeks, but to have this relationship with God, to know him in and through Jesus, okay, changes everything. And that's way more than religion, and that's way more than going to church. That's having a relationship with God. And the second thing we need to know is not just that God's a person, that, but that we don't know God, but we can. Like, and sometimes for us, we have to change some things in our lives about what we believe. I have this conversation with people all the time. And, and usually people who are, are frustrated or, or kind of seeking or, or leaving uh, belief in God, usually what they say to me is, and I hear this all the time, I can't believe in a God who blanks. Who, who believes this or says this or does this or doesn't do this. And so usually what that is, is, is they're projecting who they think God should be on God. Um, there's a great scholar. I, I love this guy. If you ever get a chance to read um, any of this guy's work, his name is Scott McKnight. And he is a professor. He used to be a professor at North Park University in Chicago, and he does this class every year on Jesus. And he starts the class off with two questionnaires. The first one is about you. Like, okay, what, what is it that makes you tick? Are you an introvert, an extrovert? Um, do you like this? Do you like that? Um, do you like long walks in the beaks? Are you a morning person? Whatever. Just this huge questionnaire. And pe- the kids fill it out. And they're like, yeah, yeah, this is me. This is me. And then he gives them another questionnaire. And this questionnaire is, what do you think Jesus is like? And they fill that one out too. And he says that 90% of the time, they're the same. 90% of the time, what people perceive Jesus to be, they see in themselves. That we have this, (laughs) this human bent in all of us to make God in our image. Genesis. And all of a sudden, God hates all the people that you hate. And God loves all the people that you love. And God votes how you vote. And God, um, you know, wants all the things in your life that God would want in his life if God were here. And the problem is that we end up with a God that looks exactly like us. No wonder why we get bored sometimes. Right? No wonder why we, we, we shy away from those times where we can enter the cloud 
with courage. See, often what we believe about God says more about us than it does about God. Our theology is like a mirror to our own soul. It, it, it shows us what's deep inside of us. See, because the made-up God, when we make up God, we actually make up a God who's pretty controllable. And that way you can be God and pretend like you were religious at the same time. And I'm saying all this because that's me. And what this understanding, okay, of who God is has done to me over the last few weeks, I want it to do to you. I want you to know this God in a new and powerful way. And it's one thing to listen to a sermon about God, okay? And it's quite another to climb up a mountain in the middle of the desert like Moses and plunge head first into the unknown. To abandon yourself to a life that's dangerous, risky, and I won't stop for anything pursuit of knowing God. That's a whole different ballgame. And so my question for you and for me today is this. Do you have the courage do you have the courage to step into the cloud, to get a picture, to see a glimpse, to hear an echo of who God is? Like a, and to turn off all the noise in your life and to actually have these questions and, and actually maybe pray the prayer that Moses said to God. He said, show me your glory. I want to know who you are. I want to know what you're like. I want to know how you tick because chances are when you do that, It'll change you. You will become more like who you worship.